0: This is The Fertility Hour, where couples learn how to improve their fertility naturally. Join Charlene Lincoln as she interviews leading experts in the fields of natural fertility, holistic medicine, and preconception care. Fertility Hour is where you'll find evidence-based strategies, tips, and resources to help you when trying to conceive. And now, here's Charlene Lincoln.
1: Okay, welcome back to another episode of The Fertility Hour. I'm your host, Charlene Lincoln. And uh, today we have a very special guest, Dr. Lara Bryden. Lara Bryden is a naturopathic doctor and the period revolutionary, (laughs) leading the change to better periods. Informed by a strong science background and more than 20 years with patients, Lara is a passionate communicator about women's health and alternatives to hormonal birth control. Her book, Period Repair Manual, is a manifesto of natural treatment for better hormones and better periods and provides practical solutions using nutrition, supplements, and natural hormones. Now in its second edition, the book has been an underground sensation and has worked to quietly change the lives of tens of thousands of women. Welcome, Dr. Lara. Hi. Thanks, Charlene, for having me. I love that. I mean, I don't know... I love talking about the menstrual cycle and, and periods. Like I was talking to uh, another guest, and she said it so beautifully: the period is another vital sign, absolutely. right? Absolutely. And it, and oh, it oh, tells absolutely. us so much. It tells us so much, but yet it's a mystery for so
2: many of us, sadly. I, I call it I call it the monthly report cards. It's a little well, barometer check-in of our health. And I've said a few times, I actually feel sorry for men that they don't have it. They don't have that window, oh. window into their health. I certainly feel that with my patients when I'm treating a man. I'm like, oh, well, actually there's suddenly this whole gap of information that I don't have about his general health. And the vital sign, that's been sort of kicking around for a while, that idea. And about two years ago, ACOG, or the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, Mm -hmm. issued a statement that called the menstrual cycle a vital sign. And they basically advised that doctors need to start speaking to their patients, especially young patients, about menstruation, because that then communicates the idea that it's important for health. And by that, they do mean natural menstrual cycles, not pill bleeds, which we can get into a bit today perhaps okay. two things come
1: to mind has yep. any has yes. any man when you said that said I wish I had my period too I mean I'm I've, does any I've man ever feel that
2: way I know I've said that in a few interviews into uh, a few groups I think I don't know I think maybe a few men have thought yeah I guess that's an interesting idea I mean it's totally off their radar as something that they would need but I mean, there's, there's some logic to it. It really is, as you say, it's it's a vital sign. It's a window into our health. It gives us clues about what we need to change, not just for our period, but for our general
1: health. Okay, because, I, I mean, I talk to a lot of women and, like, girlfriends, and they seem to kind of view it with uh, a lot of disdain, you know, Aww. and this sort of burden. And only when I went to um, acupuncture school, I was like, Oh my gosh, it gives you a wealth of information exactly. and, and what is it telling me about my emotional state and the state of everything at this point, but, um, but I have to say I, I felt the same way prior to that. And then the second thing I was thinking is when you were saying you were talking um, that, that doctors were recommended to start talking to their patients um, when they were young. Um, what would the doctors talk to them about?
2: Because it seems like they have
1: a disconnect about oh, it. As totally, well. have
2: a disconnect. I mean, this is that's why that statement was such a radical thing to be saying. Actually, doctors need to for, almost for the first time start taking menstruation seriously. What it means by talking about they mean asking the patients like, is your cycle? Do you get a cycle? Is it coming regularly? You know, is it painful? Is there something about that? You know, we should know and look into further. And that's important information for the doctor, but at the same time, the idea is that also communicates to the patient that this is an important sign to be watching. I mean, I, obviously, I'm a cheerleader for periods. I think they're great. You know, I think it's, um, and I think that whole stigma around them and the way it's been viewed as separate from health is changing. You know, women are, more and more women are starting to embrace it. I call that the period revolution, which you know, it's just a funny little phrase, but I think it's, there's a lot of something real in that as well. Okay. We're, we're talking about, you
1: know, um, our audience is women trying to conceive and and typically our audience, um, falls into the range of mid thirties to 45 years old. And, um, and as we know, the birth control pill is used off label for, you know, many, many, many things. So a lot of times a woman is on birth control pill for, Sometimes years and years, right? Like that's ab- couple decades. decades, couple yeah, decades. Ab- yeah, yeah. And so you don't really know what your menses is like. And you know, talk to us a little bit about that. Like, what are some of the the challenges that kind of come up with that? And
2: actually, what it, how I'd like to respond to that first of all, the idea of being on the pill for decades, and one of the first reasons that's problematic is because our menstrual cycle is a communication between our brain and our ovaries. That's called the HPO axis, which is a technical, but I'll just say it's the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. Um, It's a very important part of not just fertility, but general health. And it takes 12 years to mature. So I got that piece of information from the endocrinologist, Professor Gerilyn Pryor, who helped me with my book, she had some data to suggest that. So what that means is if we get our period at, say, 13, we're going to not going to be ovulating straight away. The, the, period, the cycle is still just getting its legs, right? Kind of calibrating. It, it takes 12 years, not until we're 25, that we have a proper, robust, fully ovulatory, making enough progesterone, grown up, mature cycle. So that's a long, think about that for a second. So then what happens if you put a young woman on the pill at 15 until, let's say, 32, but not unusual. That's, I see that a lot with my patients. Her cycle did not have a chance to grow up or mature. So then when she stops the pill at 30, because the pill shuts down all of that, right? It completely switches off ovarian function and that whole communication with the brain. So then it really should not come as a surprise that when she stops the pill finally at 32, that her ovulations don't just bounce straight back into being regular, right? It's a common problem after stopping the pill that nothing happens, either nothing happens or you get maybe just, you know, 50-day cycles or it's just, it's just not happening. And there's different reasons that, other reasons that can, that can occur, but I think one of, one of the problems is this suppression with the steroid drugs in hormonal birth control. I don't use the word hormone to describe what's in the pills and injections and tablets. They're, they're drugs that suppress ovarian function. And I just think, I don't, at the same time, I don't want to make it sound hopeless. I mean, certainly I've had women in, that come off the pill in their 30s panic because they're not getting periods. And But then my message is, okay, some of this is normal. Your body's trying to catch up you know, try to calibrate for the first time, it can do that. It will do that. You know, a lot of the time it it will. It's because the body's amazing and, you know, can try to make up for lost time and finally get there. But what I, what really makes me sad is if straight away a woman is shunted into fertility drugs and fertility treatment that she really doesn't need because she can ovulate on her own if she would just get a chance to do so. Oh
1: my gosh, I, I mean, for some reason, that didn't dawn on me, but it's just like yeah. leading from one to the other. But I, I mean, I, I, in the same instance, I'm always amazed when there's a woman who's been on the birth control pill for a decade or more and gets off it and then does get pregnant within I know. the first few months. I'm like, how did that the body, it's a miracle. I mean, it's so miraculous how it's able to do that. Yeah. Talk about also um, the, the thing with the birth control pill, I mean, now there's, I mean, a, a lot of women are pretty much in the dark because they're put on the pill to regulate their periods, they have painful periods. It's very, it's very hard for a young woman to deal with that. They're not given any alternatives, they're put on the pill. It seems to work well for that and then they're on it for quite a long time. Um, but then there's like imbalances that occur, right, from being on that pill
2: for so long, um, mineral imbalances, nutrient imbalances. Th- that's secondary, you know. I think we'll talk. We could talk about that. We could definitely talk about that. But I actually feel like that distracts from the main issue. So, okay. what you just said there—put on the pill to regulate cycles—it mm. doesn't do that. Like, right? It doesn't regulate anything. Right. It, it it appears uh, that way though. It's really an important point, actually. Okay. Yeah, talk, yeah, pill talk. bleeds. Pill bleeds are not periods. Um, a pill bleed is a drug induced withdrawal bleed, a drug, a drug withdrawal bleed, um, it, it's timed monthly for totally no reason at all, like zero reason. There's no reason to bleed monthly on those drugs. They they do it because it was the original kind of cover story that they had for the pill. Like way back in 60 years ago, they couldn't legally use it for birth control. So they said at, at first when it was just becoming, you know, introduced. So they said, oh no, it's, it's not to prevent pregnancy. It's to fix the period. But, you know, it's funny because at that time the doctors would have known, well, it doesn't do that. You know, it just shuts everything down. But now we sort of have this strange situation where everyone, including doctors, seems to think it's doing that. And it, yeah, it doesn't regulate cycles. It it certainly does mask symptoms because it shuts everything down. So I used the analogy just yesterday, actually, in another interview, where it's kind of like if you had a problem with your car and instead of fixing the problem or looking what it is and you, you just shut it all down, you, tr- like, shut down the car and you just drag it with a horse, you know, it's like, okay, that, you know, that use of that thing is gone and we're just going to enforce this, you know, artificial cover, you know, cover-up, basically.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: So, yeah, that, I mean, that, that's, uh, primarily that's my main concern. And also, you know, the way it, it's used for every little thing, as you say, you know, for pain, for skin. for When in actual fact, for, especially for teenagers, there are things that work very well for those other conditions. So there was a study recently published in the Australian Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology where they used zinc for period pain. And they found it worked as well as the pill. And then the author said something like, well, and it's good because it's cheaper than the pill. And also, you know, I would say also it, it's good because it doesn't, you know, shut down a woman's hormones to address the fairly simple symptom of period pain. So my experience with teenagers, because I treat a lot of teenagers mm-hmm. as well, is they respond so well to like just coming off cow's dairy, get on zinc, you know, they, they, they don't need to be suffering all those um, pain and heavy periods and skin. Um, Yeah, and then in terms of the nutrient deficiencies that you mentioned, I think a big part of the problem is that all types of hormonal birth control alter the microbiome, which your listeners probably know about. Um, So yeah, they're going to have profound changes potentially in the digestion. And then, of course, the microbiome affects other aspects of our physiology. Um, All methods of hormonal birth control are potentially bad for mood. There was a big study that came out of Denmark a couple of years ago where they tracked 1.1 million women and concluded that all types of hormonal birth control are a risk for depression and anxiety potentially. So which isn't that surprising actually because they we also know that they change the structure of the brain which is not that surprising because hormones affect all organs in terms including the nervous system and the brain. And, um, so those drug analogs are going to have affect those systems as well. And in a different way from our, compared to our own hormones. So we're talking, okay, let's
1: just make an example of yeah. um, a, a woman who's 20 years old. She's not ready to start a family. Um, she, you know, looks to, for birth control, birth control pills, something that's offered to her. She's on it for a couple years and then she comes to see you. I mean, Okay, okay the, I'm, I'm giving this example because when I was in acupuncture school, we had yeah. a, a great gynecologist, Doctor Zhu, and she was telling us if you're on the birth control pill, you need to get off the pill and never yeah. use a tamp- and, and never use a tampon because those those fibers they get caught up in in the tissue. So we all, you know, that's fine. Stop using tampon. Got off the pill. I mean, this is a class of maybe 25 people. Yeah, two or three of them got pregnant because I mean, obviously they they didn't do a backup plan, but. I mean, so that's a major concern Is part of you educating them on like the, what is it called, why am I blanking out, but what is it called when you, when you track your periods? Fertility
0: and your... awareness method?
1: Yes.
2: <laughs> yes. Um,
1: because, I mean, obviously they need to have a solution. Oh, obviously, yeah.
2: obviously couples, women need access to effective birth control. We can just do a quick survey through them if you want. I mean, I know this is a podcast on fertility, but this is, we're also talking about people you know, earlier in their life, and yeah. um, so fertility awareness methods is based methods. It's more than one method. It's a number of different techniques using temperature and or cervical fluid to check fertile days because women are fertile for only six days per cycle. And which, as you know, I'm sure, because women know that when they're trying to fall pregnant, the same you can use the same technique to avoid pregnancy. There was actually just an article yesterday in the new yorker about it i'm actually going to share on instagram today because it's it's a thing now right it's definitely making a massive comeback it's in the broader conversation not just the the old methods using pen and paper fertility awareness method but there's a couple of products out there um devices that have a computer algorithm that potentially does that for you i'll mention them by name if that's okay i mean the um the one i like or the one i often recommend for my patients is called daisy it's a little computer thermometer computer that does all the calculations it gives a you know a green yellow or red kind of day you know light on each day and the green means it's safe to have unprotected sex mm. in terms of avoiding pregnancy and they claim a pretty high efficacy i mean they're currently claiming i think 99.3% effective in terms of predicting fertile days and then the other one that is called natural cycles, which I think has a lower efficacy, but they, because of a different algorithm, but they, um, they recently had FDA approval as a contraceptive device, basically, which is pretty massive. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's just happened a couple months ago. Very cool. So that's, that's there, that's out there. And there are a lot of young women choosing those methods. So that's one. You know, we have barrier methods which somehow, I don't know why, I've kind of been forgotten about. They're they're great. There's a new diaphragm called Kaya, C-A-Y-A. There are, of course, condoms, which and there are new condoms. So with my patients, I counsel them on if they want to use condoms, then it's about choosing one that is going to have the safest, you know, the the least chance of being a problem. And that means getting one that fits. I talk about a type of condom in my book called a brand called My One my one condoms, and it comes in 60 different sizes, which totally makes sense when you think about it. Why were we ever trying to use, you know, one-size-fits-all condom? It really makes a difference in terms of slippage and breaking and things like that. So potentially, there's a few other products on the on the market that would make condoms a, a more reliable method. A lot of people combine fertility awareness method and barrier. And then there's um, the Copper IUD, which is a whole podcast on its own, which we will just touch on. I'll just say there's a, if it's okay to mention, there's a, a blog, a post on my blog called The Pros and Cons of the Copper IUDs. So people can look there, look at all the ups and downs, you know, different sides of that. It is, um, doesn't alter hormones, doesn't suppress ovulation. So you're naturally cycling when you have a copper IUD and it has one of the highest efficacy of any method, any type of birth control, actually. Okay, if I could just interject real
1: quick, yeah. just so that our fertility people aren't aren't going, but why oh, is it about no. birth control? Well, we do really, really, really educate yeah. um, our audience about the preconception phase, which is a sure. minimum of four months before trying to conceive where you're really preparing your body um, so that you could have the healthiest egg, your partner could have the healthiest sperm to conceive, so these can be used during that time, so yeah, that obviously you're not going to use the birth control pill, um, and so these could be a very viable option during that time.
2: Absolutely, and also for after, between babies, right, so some of your listeners, hopefully, if they do, you know, hopefully do succeed with this pregnancy, they're going to then, after delivery, be almost straight away faced with the problem again of, well, what do I do, you know, before the next one? So um, there's that ankle as well. And also for their daughters one day, you know, if you have a, a daughter, my plea would be please don't let her take the pill at 14. You know, there are already other options. There are other options coming. We'll, we'll conclude this section by, I'll just mention something called basal gel. They're in your city, I think. So you're in San Francisco, aren't you? They're in they're at Berkeley, nonprofit organization. I'm um, trying to crowdfund some clinical trials for a male method called basal gel, which is a non-hormonal one-time gel injection of the vas deferens, which can then be, you know, removed years later when a man is ready. for a- mm-hmm. So that, in my view, that's a game changer. Like I am just holding out for that because then we can just finally have a conversation of, you know, how can we prevent pregnancy? Well, 50% of the population could you know, do their their side of things (laughs) oh i know that would be nice
1: yeah it seems um it it seems less daunting than getting a vasectomy because my brother had one and he told me
2: it was kind of (laughs) traumatic it's well it's certainly less daunting it's a it's like a reversible vasectomy it works on the same principle but it's only a little gel that goes in there temporarily and then can come out again
1: yeah okay that's very cool and yeah and okay so the yeah i'm I'm anti-pill. I've seen so many problems with it. So let's talk about, though, um, you know, there are so many women with irregular periods, painful periods. They don't even know what a healthy period really
2: right. is. Right. So what does a healthy period Yeah, what does what it look like? Right. Yep, absolutely. So the monthly report card should look like, I mean, fortunately, there's some there's some variation, of course, because we're individuals. So in general for a, a grown woman, not a, a teenager is a little bit different, they can have longer cycles and that's okay. But let's say a woman you know, over 20, over 25, day one of the period should arrive anywhere between 21 and 35, every 21 to 35 days, um, counting from day one to day one. And it should be ovulatory, which means ovulation should have occurred. Now, the interesting thing about that, of course, it's possible to have what's called an anovulatory cycle. I'm sure your listeners know about that. If they're tracking their temperatures, there's going to be a month where, even if it looked fairly normal in terms of timing, there was just no ovulation. That actually, we now know, occurs in about one in three women just occasionally. Like, I think it's like one in three net even just cycles, even of healthy women, are going to be anovulatory. It's because of stress and other things. It's... Um, a body's kind of natural response to different things going on in life to maybe say, oh, that's not a good month to ovulate. Um, So that's the timing and the importance of ovulation. And then the other um, aspects, it the bleed itself could be anywhere between, say, two and seven days um, would be a healthy normal bleed, losing no more than about 80 milliliters of menstrual fluid through all of those days. And arriving pretty much with no pain or PMS or much fanfare at all. You know, I'm in the – I actually believe from my 20 years' work with patients and lots of, you know, conversations with readers on my blog, that is possible for most women.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, Barring – of course, endometriosis is a separate – endometriosis and adenomyosis are separate issues. I mean, there's other – Things obviously that can be going on, but for someone who does not have one of those diseases, that's possible. That's my experience. Is that women can get there and with natural treatments, and it's not that hard to do. I know for someone
1: who had PMS for many,
2: many years,
1: um, you just and and then everyone talks. You you find kind of like a tribe of women. oh, you know, terrible PMS. So it does seem very. It, it is very common but it's not normal and as exactly. you said it it it's just you know it it's very profound when you go through um sometimes if you um forget when your cycle is coming and then you get it and you go, oh I didn't even have any indication. Yeah. Because even like um well like in Chinese medicine, even the breast distension and tenderness, that's a sign of imbalance as well.
0: Exactly.
1: Yeah. And exactly.
0: some exactly
1: like, oh you know that's that's just part of getting your period, getting very bloated, getting very emotional, the breast distension, the out-of-control cravings, the
2: emotional cycling up and down. Actually, that's treatable, right? Absolutely. Chinese medicine is a good place to look look at the normal period. Yeah, because the expectation in Chinese medicine is just pretty much what I described, that the period comes without symptoms, that it comes regularly. They've known that for thousands of years. I had another... Chinese medicine practitioners share with me something that her teacher said years ago, which was basically, "Yeah, it's, it's, isn't it strange how you, you know, American women think that periods should be painful, or it's normal for periods to be painful, because in, in their thinking, periods should not be painful, and that's my thinking as well. It's if it's if there's pain, there's something going on. Well, I think in this
1: culture we have a mydol deficiency. <laughs> because <laughs> i joke but like growing up i had friends who you know they would go to the doctor and get really high prescription like prescription yeah. my doll and so and that would just seem normal you're like oh you have to just take that whatever pink pill yeah because, um yeah you know, it's it going on you have to treat you
2: have to treat it and uh, i don't know that seemed totally normal at the time well that you're right that it's we were in that culture of this expectation of how periods are. I'm trying to change that expectation, raise the bar <laughs> of expectation that, you know, we have, yeah, periods are a natural healthy function and really shouldn't be that many symptoms. And that's not to make women, I don't want to make have it sound like women should feel bad or that it's their fault or something if they're having symptoms because, I, of course, I, a lot of women do have symptoms. But my message is actually there are some fairly simple changes you could make to surprisingly, you might, you know, happily surprised to relieve a lot of those symptoms. Okay. Do share what what are some of those things that you found okay. effective. Well, with, um, so a lot of this is in my book, Period Repair Manual, and it's going to depend somewhat on what, obviously what the symptoms are, who the person is, but let's say just in very general terms, I'm happy to give away the, the main points of treatment. Um, I do feel like for many women, cows dairy is... A major driver of inflammation and potentially, certainly, period pain, possibly PMS, often skin issues. I think it's to do. I think there's different aspects going on with dairy. I think it's um, in large part to do with sort of a histamine response in the body that many women get from cows' dairy. And I say cows' dairy because I find clinically that goat and sheep dairy is totally different. And you know, butter is quite different because it doesn't have an inflammatory protein called A1 casein that is in normal cow's dairy. So this is a big thing I do with my patients, you know, even just myself personally, you know, when I stopped having dairy 25 years ago, I stopped having period pain completely. And to be fair, that is not going to be true for every single woman. So I don't want to make it sound like every woman is sensitive to dairy or that's the only solution that's ever needed. Some women are fine with cow's dairy. So this is where some of the nuances come into it, but it's, it's common. And then the next, I, I speak a lot in my book about zinc, partly because of that clinical trial I just mentioned where they use zinc for period pain. Zinc works really well for skin. Teenagers, a teenager with acne, if she would just stop, even for six months, kind of dairy, cut, cut way back on sugar, take zinc, you know, her skin should be fine. It takes a few months to clear, but that can make, that. that's a simple intervention that can work. Um, Reducing dairy can help with heavy periods as well. And I use a, I also use the herbal medicine turmeric quite a lot to lighten periods. Um, It reduces prostaglandins, you know, actually, interestingly about heavy periods and the histamine side of things, I mean, I I don't know how much your listeners will know about histamine intolerance or that, but the, um, the lining of the uterine lining actually has a number of what are called mast cells who are involved in that histamine response, and they also release something called heparin, which um, is a blood thinner, which makes periods heavier. So when I learned that a couple, like, earlier this year, I thought, yeah, that makes sense. That's possibly why cutting cow's dairy can make periods quite a bit lighter.
1: Mm, okay and when you and when you mentioned turmeric how do you recommend that your clients take it is it encapsulated form are you using the raw the root I
2: use capsules take Uh it with a fatty meal there's lots of different good brands of the high dose capsules out there it's it's nice to use it's safe I consider it safe when trying Mm -hmm. for pregnancy although the high dose ones I would ask patients to stop that once they are pregnant Um, I'm quite conservative you know once there is pregnancy I don't like to have too many supplements in place, but um, yeah.
1: How do you view clotting? Because um, I know in Chinese medicine that was always like a diagnostic question. Do you have clotting? What size are the clots? Like yeah, I do. have clots all the time. I thought that it was, I mean, it, seemed, it was normal for me, let's just say that. But
2: Well, it, it is directly related to the amount of flow. So, if the heavier, flas- faster flow is going to by definition have more clots because the anti-clotting agents that the body naturally produces have not had a chance to fully work so it can't it just it does often just go hand in hand with heavy flow but i mean clots can also be a sign of um other things like endometriosis and so if if it's not particularly heavy flow and there are clots then i might be thinking more about inflammation or you know is there enough progesterone things like that Okay, um,
1: I know in Chinese medicine they also it's called liver qi stagnation and sometimes a, a, emotional factors of like a, suppressions of anger and things like that, it'll come out in a very clotty period, dark period. Yeah. Um, what do you think about um, menstrual cups and um, I don't know if it's just me, but I, I kind of like menstrual cups because I can look at the quality yeah. of my blood and see what's I Oh, drive clotting or what's the color of my blood and... Um, they're, I guess they're kind of messy. There's a little bit of a, a, a learning curve and, and people are kind of, women are kind of squeamish or pulling it out and it, it is filled with menstrual blood. But um, I think it's a great alternative.
2: Oh, I she, love them. And also remember you said earlier about the gynecologist who was warning about the little micro plastic fibers coming mm, off tampons. I mean, yeah. my, the, the other reason a cup is good is because it doesn't dry out the vaginal mucosa.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's healthier for the vagina. But, and it's, Yeah, the whole messy aspect—I've never—I don't see as a problem. Most of my patients, once they start using them, love them, Um, and I personally used a menstrual cup for a long
1: time. Like, Uh
2: do you have like a uh, do you have a brand that you have um, found an affinity to? Um, uh, There are lots of good brands out there. I I hate Ah. to kind of—I mean, I personally I personally use a Diva cup, but that's just what it was easy for me to buy (laughs) online. Yeah, yeah. But I definitely think it needs to be a natural, you know, silicone like a good quality material and I guess the right shape that women feel comfortable removing and working. Mm -hmm. And, and if, um, if women,
1: you know, aren't comfortable using that, do you have any, um, feedback on a a lot of the the commercial, like the tampons and the pads that are out there? Is there, you know, something that you can kind of say about having that close to your reproductive organs? Yeah.
2: Well, for, for tampons, I think it is just a no-brainer. It's really important to get one that's organic cotton, you know, not have the synthetic fibers in there because that is not good mm-hmm. for the vagina. Um, and preferably not with, you know, bleaches or dioxins or things that are going to... Um, that's real. You know, I think mm-hmm. so. There's I, I guess I would say get a, a better quality, potentially organic tampon, yep. Yeah,
1: and the pads, a lot of them, like, I think they come with, like, perfumes, and then they have oh, a yeah. oh, gel gosh. that gets released. I don't know if that's so, I mean, I, I, I'm going to say, I'm, I'm acting coy, but I,
2: I don't think it's good at all. It's not good. Against your vagina. Okay, here's something, for, and this is now for fertility. Yeah. Um, the vaginal microbiome hugely important. Mm-hmm. For I think we're just starting to understand how important that is. So would your listeners know what I mean by that? Like the, the good bacteria living in the vagina? They're, 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 they're fairly well versed in this, but I mean, yeah. some, some will, some won't. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the good bacteria that live in the vagina have a very important job <laughs> of just lots of things. You know, they, um, they maintain a normal pH. I mean, they're going to affect the quality of the cervical fluid when that's produced as well. So, which is very important for sperm transfer There's actually even some evidence that, because vaginal microbiome will also somewhat indirectly affect the uterine microbiome, which is very important for fertility and implantation. So So, we need to, I think going forward, we're going to start to think more and more about what you know bacteria are living down there and what are all the different things that might influence those. So certainly that would be a reason to avoid, well, spermicides, which is obviously not, you know, you wouldn't be using if you're avoiding, if you're trying to fall pregnant. But... um, yeah, perfumes, things like that, not not good, and douche, certainly not like, you know, any kind of v- wash, or vaginal wash, or douche, or anything like that, it's quite bad for the microbiome.
1: Yeah, those seem to be quite popular, I remember like in the, you know, in the 80s, as a, as a young kid, like your mom would have those, and then I, hopefully they've faded away.
2: Well, I hope they're fading away, I know some people yeah. say, but they really are not good.
1: Really yeah, much. but I saw like on a TV commercials about, um, I don't know, some wash or something for the smell of the vagina. And nope. if, if you have a smell in your vagina, what, what is it, vaginosis? I mean, there, there's some, there's an imbalance going on and it's not a time to just put perf, a perfumed wash.
2: Absolutely there. not. No, it's, it's a, um, Bacterial vaginosis is, is common. It's an ecological issue in the vagina in terms of the microbiome. So it, it just means you need some more of those good bacteria. And there are some clinical trials using what are called vaginal probiotics, which you take either orally or you can insert and they can improve vaginal, um, bacterial vaginosis and yeah create a better environment for both less smell and also better fertility, potentially just healthier situation. Um,
1: what about kind of, I, I don't know, it's coming up for me as far as like period and PMS. Do you recommend like journaling or things like that because like a lot of emotional things come up during that time and some of it is through the filter of your hormones and right. maybe after you're like oh I don't really I, I really do love my husband you know right. but it's, uh, it, things get sensitive so like wh- what kind of things do you kind of recommend to help transition you through that time emotionally
0: right
2: okay well first of all I, I would say again in terms of my raising the bar of expectation I don't think women should have to suffer much pms you know i think Mm -hmm. i'll just offer a couple i do think again there's some simple treatments um magnesium vitamin b6 potentially coming off cow's dairy i'll I'll say i'll dip into chinese medicine because i'd studied a bit of that as well as part of my naturopathic degree and we use the zhao yao or the buplerum and Mm peony to clear liver qi for pms Mm -hmm. and that i mean that could be incredibly helpful as well so there's that but then I will acknowledge that there, you know, there are going to be some more subtle shifts in energy and mood, of course, because progesterone and then losing progesterone at the end of the cycle has effects. So, I think certainly, I mean, journaling if that's what someone wants to do, but also even just having some kind of tracking, whether it's an app, that, a phone app that alerts you to, oh, you're in PMS right now, and then you can look down and think, actually, that's probably why I'm, you know, feeling more sensitive than usual, and yeah, that's helpful just to. Um, give it some context and also to know that it won't it, it's going to end in a few days you know it's not how you are now it's just that window of time where you are with your cycle yeah
1: okay so going back to fertility uh yeah. women reach out to me and then they say you know like i've had really irregular periods i've breakthrough spotting or if You know, amenorrhea, dysmenorrhea, just whatever, all these different things going on. And then I'm trying to get pregnant at the same time. And I know it's really hard because everyone uh, feels like a certain, well, the biological clock, you know, and they feel a kind of a rush to get things done. But um, it's so important, right, to have a healthy period, and yet it's kind of a daunting thing. I've always had irregular periods, so how in the heck am I going to make it regular in a in a reasonable timeline you know, I, know. Where I i could start a family and all that so what, what's your feedback on that
2: okay well first i'll just respond to something we were talking about earlier this process especially if it's coming off the pill and having no periods or irregular periods for a while which is very understandable given what i described about what the pill does right so i would say yes i mean there's some women who's Ovulations bounce back straight away and they start ovulating and that's great for them, but there are lots of women for whom that does not happen. And then the problem is if they're pushed into fertility treatment too soon. And the reason I'm bringing that up again is because the messaging from the medical community to women is this idea of you're broken. You you can't ovulate. They're like, they're like, I could see on this you know lab report that you didn't ovulate or this ultrasound, you're not ovulating, therefore you can't ovulate. That's their kind of logic. That's the part that I really take issue. It's like, just because you have not been ovulating, let's say this six months off the pill, it doesn't mean you can't. Absolutely does not mean you can't. Like you in my experience, most women absolutely 100 percent can. It takes time though. I need to explain a time frame around this. So even once everything is in place, let's say you know certainly eating enough is a main is a big issue. Ruling out things like PCOS, which actually polycystic ovarian syndrome, syndrome is a complicated diagnosis, which we could maybe touch on later. But you know, looking at nutrient deficiencies, making sure everything is good. Even then, it could take six months to start to ovulate regularly because, well, four to six months. The as you probably know, the ovarian follicles, the little pre-eggs, the little baby eggs growing, they take 100 days to grow, and they need a healthy body and healthy signaling from the brain, everything working, everything happening, the hypothalamus deciding, the part of the brain that, you know, regulates periods deciding, yes, we're going to do this, it's time to do this, that minimum that takes 100 days. So after treatment, after natural treatment gets started, minimum, and usually six months. So when a patient comes to me and says, I'm gonna give natural treatment two months and then I'm going to take fertility drugs, I'm like, well, there's no point. Like there's literally no point in doing this. So, because it doesn't have time to work, which I know doesn't fit the timeline of a, a lot of women, unfortunately, but my, my experience with patients is it's actually better to give yourself a little bit longer timeline. You might end up just becoming pregnant on your own before resorting to the drugs.
1: I, I mean I, I absolutely agree because I think it's so sad because women feel like in that four to six months that their last egg is going to I know, die. <laughs> no. I know that's how we're told. I mean that's what we're sort of kind of I don't know, subliminally told that you know we probably have like one old egg rattling around in there, and it's going to go this, away. So
2: messaging to women that they're yeah, broken, that they're running out of eggs, is
1: yeah.
2: very destructive. Uh, you know, I I don't even know how to get you know begin to sort of counteract. Yeah, it's upsetting the problems with the fertility yeah. industry. It's it's really doing a lot of harm. I. But it's greatly you know, profitable, isn't it?
1: I mean, to have this message because you just put fear behind something and it's a great motivator to go in one direction, even if intuitively you feel like it might not be right for you or whatever. You,
2: you just, can we bring in another aspect too, which uh-huh. is the male factor. Yeah. So there were a couple of articles that came out just together in the news that you know, I shared on Instagram a couple weeks ago, but sperm is in trouble like it really is in trouble. Like there, and there are a lot of men out there who their, their, their sperm is not that great, <laughs> even though the doctor might say it's fine. This is the problem because they don't really look at those reports very carefully. I mean, as long as there's just a couple, they're like this idea that, you know, one sperm is enough. That's not true. There have to be a, quite a lot and they have to be of a certain quality. And the, so there was a one article about so the massive decline in sperm count recently, and the second article was making the point that we're in this situation with medicine right now where the only way to treat a male factor infertility is with IVF. So they said, we're treating women for male problems, and one doctor said it something like, this is the only place in medicine where we treat one person, we treat another person, for the problem of the main person, like it's, and I I can't tell you how many patients I've sat down with and they are women and they're trying everything. It's like, I must have to eat something different. If only I could get the right supplement. It's like everything. I'm just going to try all these different things with me. And then I said, it's, it's a male issue. Like it's a morphology issue with your partner. Like until he does something, you're not going to find that one right supplement or that one right herb or, which is, I know it's hard to hear that. I, we have to, I don't know, it, it's, you know, men have to enter into it And I know, I know a lot of men do, and a lot of partners do come into it and do treatment as well.
1: Um, yeah, that is coming out more and more and more, because um, I'm hearing, I, I'm hearing uh, about sperm issues. Um, it, it's getting out there. It's just, it's weird, because I guess, like, if a man – I don't know, I guess it's something to do with um the manliness of the man if he has defective or low sperm. So it's I know. it's you have to be like very fragile with that sex. I know. Where with a woman it's like, yeah, well it's been our fault all along. So I mean we've we've been kind of carrying this burden and it's normal. But yeah, with men, I know it's weird when I've treated people and you go, Oh my gosh, but your partner I mean like sometimes they are like, No, my partner's not gonna come in. No. Like, well, I don't know what we're doing here then because yeah, you can't Yeah, yeah you can't I mean, you can't treat a woman for a male problem. Yeah. I mean you can like do things with the sperm, but you can't fix a batch of bad sperm. I mean you can wash it and do all these manipulations, but it only does so much. And I think in in a sense that's why IVF treatments I mean, they're quite That's a 100%. success rate. You know, if you think about it, it's like a lot of times it's seventy percent failure rate in, in those. And uh, because well, the, the article considered
2: yeah. enough. Yeah, the article I was just quoting said that the main sex success with IVF is when it's a male problem, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So a lot of I would say a fair bit of IVF is being done and getting around the problem of you know a male
0: problem. Mm-hmm
2: okay which politically it's right. very concerning that these women are being subjected to drugs that they potentially you know didn't need for themselves but yeah
1: oh absolutely and and as far as like um because you touched upon pcos and then you know um well the ivf whatever the topic of ivf I mean, that's like a part two interview right Yeah. If we can talk about that i mean i've mixed emotions, I, wa- I want people to have a family, however it can happen, but maintaining their own health, I, I sometimes I just have concerns, I mean, it, it alerted me because um, there was a doctor and he was considered like the pioneer of IVF, Sammy David, and he wrote the book, um, co-wrote the book, um, Making Babies, it came out now about seven or eight years ago, and he was saying that the IVF industry is the most underregulated of all the medical industries, and think about all these IVF babies that are being born and the women that are subjected to all the drugs, it, it frightens me, because I don't, what, I mean, what's the long-term
2: implications? We don't quite know yet. Um, okay, he, here's, okay, here, from, a, from our perspective, mm-hmm. from a natural health perspective, the way we think about it is a healthier woman will result in a healthier, you know, a pregnancy, a healthier baby, like that's the trajectory. It's like, let's increase, improve the health of the woman
1: Mm-hmm.
2: and then out of that will come, hopefully, you know, a, a healthy pregnancy. With IVF, the, the, what concerns me most is a woman's health is bottom of the list. Like, as far as I can tell, everything, literally everything comes before a woman's health. So they, it's, it's like this, they flipped it, right? So the mentality is get a baby, and at what cost? Like, Especially, there was just a research study that came out that women with endometriosis are made a lot worse by IVF, which is not that surprising when you consider what those drugs are like. And they, I mean, it sounds—it sounds, sounds blunt and mean, but my experience is it's certainly in Australia where I work and the, and the IVF industry is huge, those doctors don't seem to care about the women's health at the end of the day. I mean, I had one conversation with a patient where, with endometriosis. And she was in a lot of pain after one of many, you know, cycles, stimulating cycles. And I said to her, well, who's your doctor? Like who's your gynecologist who's kind of looking after you? And she said, oh, this, you know, fertility doctor who's in charge of the IVF. I'm like, no, he's not in charge. He doesn't care about, obviously, from his, you know, the behavior, doesn't care about your health. We need someone, another doctor who's actually thinking about you. And so, I mean, I'm putting everything through. I'm very woman-centered. So when I'm working with my patients, Yes, I at the same time I want to honor that they want a baby. Yes, but I also my job is to look after their health. So first and foremost, that's my duty of care. So uh, I that's why I'm so troubled by what I see women the I mean it's just it's hard to talk about it without being emotional. It's I mean of course that's why That's why I I get so upset when a woman's been off the pill for four months, rightly so not ovulating yet, because it's perfectly normal reaction to those coming off those steroid drugs, and is told straight away, is told you can't ovulate, therefore the only thing you can do is take these drugs, and it's crazy.
1: I, I'm right there with you. I feel the exact same way. I watched this documentary. Um, it, it's worth a watch. It's called Vegas Baby. It's about an IVF clinic in Las Vegas, and they ran this big nationwide contest, and they they chose couples. And there was just one couple, and you really like your heart broke for them. The IVF failed, and then it, I think it failed again, and then and, and then they went through the process where, but they, they're like their health or the woman's health was never discussed, and. Nope. She, seemed to have like maybe not the greatest health, but they forced the drugs and at the end they were able to have the baby, but I, and, and maybe people were celebrating, oh, they got to be parents, and it is beautiful. But I was like, but what is she going to feel like? I mean, I say postpartum is a, is a thyroid disorder. Like, think about all those drugs being pumped into our system and what it's doing with the endocrine system. And you're the caretaker for that baby. I mean, you have to think about yourself five, 10 years down the road. I've treated women who had undergone, um, there's one woman who had undergone four cycles of IVF and it was six years later, and she's like, I feel crazy. Like, I never got my health back from this. But she had a baby. I mean, she had a daughter who actually had some health issues too, but I don't know if that's all interrelated. But, you know, it, it gets complicated, and, I, yeah, I don't like it either. I, I just think that um, women need to really protect themselves. And um, it's, the end goal is not just the baby. It's having a healthy baby, healthy pregnancy while maintaining your own health because and, women, women matter,
2: too. Women as individuals they matter, too, matter. Yeah. not just their potential to be a mother. I mean, yeah. and, and I know that's very important to most of your listeners. I don't want to take away from that. I know that's important.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But the, their health is important, too,
1: as yeah, much. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, if, and if you think about it, I mean, if you're listening to this and going, well, yeah, of course, I matter. It, but, I mean, also, just as your role as a caretaker, I mean, being a mom. It's very challenging, I have found. And if I did not have my health and things like that, I just, I don't know, I just couldn't imagine. Um, It's just challenging in and of itself.
2: Um, Well, and also just to open up another door, it Mm -hmm. is also possible, I'm sure you and I have both seen with our patients, to have both. It is possible to be healthy. You know, the pathway to a baby could be through health as well rather Mm than, you know, through IVF, potentially. I mean, it's... uh, Bearing in mind all the factors, I mean, I guess if there's a strong male factor, maybe that door is closed apart from IVF, but then that's, a, you know, that's, that's another issue. I guess that's thinking it through and just understanding that you're, you know, I guess, doing it because because of a male issue that at the moment, medicine has no other option. Medicine is failing women, basically. It's not that women are failing or that men are failing. I think the current approach to women's health and fertility is failing women, is setting them up for health problems that they just simply should not need to be subjected to.
1: I interviewed um, Dr. William Davis, he wrote the book Wheat Belly, and then he followed up with a book called Undoctored, and I mean, just to kind of sum it up, but he was just saying like, healthcare is failing us, and that, you know, doctors, you know, kind of um, they they get mad at us going on the internet and searching out things. We wouldn't be doing that if we were getting answers the, the traditional yep. route. But we're we're banding together and finding information outside of that doctor's office and, and talking and having conversations. And he was like, Yeah, the, the the medicine of tomorrow is a lot. I mean, we're able to run our you know get these functional medicine lab tests ourselves because there's a lot of direct to consumer stuff and, yep. and and really search out people who aren't practicing medicine in this old archaic way because i mean let's get real 10 years from now all the ways that we're treating any of these chronic diseases it, it's going to be hopefully radically different maybe maybe 20 years from now but i agree you know, it's yeah. an archaic system of medicine over overinflated in cost and harming us more than helping us um is my opinion in this country? <laughs> tired of being diplomatic about it, but I really do. Yeah. And, you know, it's shameful. And, like, putting young girls on the
2: birth control pill,
1: we should know better, you know. We and, should
2: know better. Women deserve better. It's good to bring that in again. And because I know we, we started out with talking about young girls and alternative birth control and, you know, questioning how does that fit into a conversation about fertility, it totally does. In the, mm-hmm. It's in the big picture, right? It's about how we treat women's bodies. This whole mindset that, the other big part of my work, actually, is this idea that, Women don't need cycles, don't need ovulation, don't need hormones until they're ready for a baby. It's like compartmentalizing all of women's physiology for that one purpose, which is crazy because we don't do that for men. That would be like saying to men, literally saying to men, you don't need testosterone until you're ready for a baby. So we're just going to shut that down until you're 35 and then go for it. Like, so that robs women of the beneficial hormones and ovulatory cycles that they could have had all those years and again again if someone if, if your listener is sitting there at 35 and this has been her experience then i don't you know please don't feel bad your body can still recover and also this is good information for you to take forward and pass on to the next generation and oh, help yeah. us. i mean I, I hope no one comes away from this being like i feel
1: blamed for this it's not like no, you said i mean we honor women and we're just trying to educate and we've all been duped to a certain degree yes. we, It's our uh, re-education into just our own bodies, and it's quite complex and a little bit confusing and overwhelming, but we're trying to disseminate the truth here. Um,
2: Although one of my messages, too, is that women's health isn't that complex. You know, it's quite simple in some ways. I think that's another thing that we've been duped, just to thinking that, oh, our, you know, women's health, it's so complex, we just have to leave that in the hands of the gynecologist. It's like, no, it's actually not that complex. Our cycle is a natural manifestation of our health. It responds incredibly well to some of the things we've spoken about. And just about that kind of collective women's voice and passing that on. So yes, so even if someone individually has unfortunately, you know, been told to take the pill from teen years to 35 and is now feeling bad about that, you can still take this information and your experience and you can pass that on to the young women in your life, because I'm sure most people of us have, you know, younger sisters or cousins or nieces or, you know, someone who could benefit from a new understanding and a new way of doing things. Mm, share this podcast
1: with, um, with a young woman you care about. Absolutely. And you're going to yeah. have daughters and uh, thank God our daughters won't have to go through a lot of the stuff that we did, and it yep. um, won't we'll be shrouded in mystery. And, um, you know, yeah. I mean, there's young women who died from birth control. You know, there's been major lawsuits in this country. Well, uh, that does but Really, like, they didn't make national news. I mean, they were sort of like hidden stories of just terrible tragedies from birth control, so. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: yeah. yeah. Okay, well, so I, I love this interview. Um, very thought-provoking. and yeah glad we didn't hold back because yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> it was good it was yeah it was a great conversation yeah
1: and i, I mean i'd love to invite you back because i know you're just a wealth of knowledge and you know i i just want to extract that from you there's more to but say sure. there is more to say i, I want to say one more quick word about PC yeah
2: absolutely just a quick word, because this is another area where women are being done a oh service.
1: and and i would like to know more about like where can we find you it'll all be in the podcast notes right I'd like you to vocalize that.
2: okay so I'll, I'll finish, I'll, give, I'll share my details, but also I'll just say, with regard to PCOS, I recently wrote a blog post called Maybe You Don't Have PCOS,
0: mm.
2: where I talk about, I quote a, a recent paper from the British Medical Journal where the authors really questioned how it's being diagnosed currently and questioned the way, which I see too, the way a PCOS diagnosis is just slapped on women when they're young, too young really to qualify for that diagnosis because it's normal to have a lot of those features when you're young a lot of those hormonal features of PCOS. And also the other situation I see is post-pill. So when you come off the pill, it's normal to not ovulate straight away. It's normal to even get some male hormone temporarily kind of happening. And then the doctor says, you looks on an ultrasound, which is meaningless, and says, oh, you have PCOS, therefore all the things that come after that. And therefore a woman might start doing a low carb diet or go on a diabetic drug that she doesn't need or obviously IVF, all these things. I'm just really raising a question mark around that diagnosis for some women. Certainly some women do have polycystic ovarian syndrome, for real, but some women don't. And I think some women actually have an under-eating problem, which is the opposite. So I really would like to get that message out there. That's on my blog, and that's in my book as well called Period Repair Manual, which is about how to ovulate again when you're coming off the pill, You know how to deal with heavy painful periods, how to think about whether you might have endometriosis, what some of the natural treatments are for that. I talk about conventional treatments as well in the book. I tried to give kind of a full survey of what's out there for different options. Uh, I mean according
1: to this article and so that okay I I I'm, I'm very interested in that. But yeah. then what like what do they go on to say as far because I know the diagnostics are a little bit iffy but I mean what how how, how does one know if they really do or not?
2: Yeah. Well, that's a very good question. Okay, so one of the points they make in that article about uh-huh. the overdiagnosis of PCOS is that many women, some women, outgrow it. So for some women, it can just be a temporary state. I would go further and say it can can be a temporary state post-pill that will just you know, disappear basically with mm-hmm. with a year or two as a woman learns to ovulate again. But the true condition of polycystic ov- ovary syndrome is. Um, anovulatory cycles, mostly anovulatory cycles, plus high male hormones, either measurable on blood tests or clear signs of facial hair, which is not just a little bit of hair on the upper lip, but like, you know,
0: mm. hair
2: and, the, you know, the chin, the throat, the chest around the nipples, you know, a clear picture. And then that is, yeah, that's real. And that's often linked to an underlying condition called in, insulin resistance. You know that that does require treatment because it's actually we almost it's difficult well impossible to fall pregnant if you're only having anovulatory cycles. Bearing in mind though, even that real state of PCOS is reversible. So what they also say in the British medical in the British Medical Journal article is that most women with PCOS diagnosis go on to have pregnancies, Um, and that's my experience too, and natural pregnancies. So most women with IVF can reverse out of that situation and start to ovulate. So it's against the message of just because you haven't been ovulating doesn't mean you can't.
1: hmm Yeah, absolutely.
2: Okay, so how do yeah. I find out more about you? My blog is larabryden.com, and my social media handle is at larabryden on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And my book is Period Repair Manual.
1: I love that title. Oh, Um,
2: thank
1: you. Yeah. yeah. It sounds, it's, I think that's important to have on your bookshelf or in your Kindle or wherever you're reading these days. Yeah. Yeah. A really important one. Um, Okay. Thank you so much. And I'm going to invite you and I'll contact you in a couple weeks when this is published.
0: Thanks, Charlie. Okay. Thank you. uh, Bye. bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Hour, for being one of our loyal listeners we would like to give you free access to a special report called Restore Your Fertility Naturally. Inside, you'll learn about an 8-step all-natural process that's helped hundreds of couples conceive. This is one of our most popular reports, and you can get free access by going to fertilityhour.com forward slash report. Again, that's fertilityhour.com forward slash report. Go there now, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Fertility Hour.